thank you for joining Mind Your Brain, a podcast of valuable information to improve the quality of life for those affected by a brain injury. Our goal is to give you tools and tips to help you take control of your recovery. We believe in you. We've walked in your shoes. My name is Candace Gant. I'm a brain injury survivor and founder of Mind Your Brain at Penn Medicine and the executive director of the Mind Your Brain Foundation. I'm also proud to be on the board of the Brain Injury Association of Pennsylvania, otherwise known as BIAPA, and represent other survivors by traveling to Harrisburg and Washington as the co-chair of the Pennsylvania Brain Injury Coalition. Today, we are welcoming Keith M. Robinson, MD, to the studio. He's a specialist in neurological rehabilitation. Dr. Robinson is an associate professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at the Perlman School of Medicine of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and the chief of rehabilitation at the Corporal Michael J. Krizenz Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Philadelphia. He developed and leads the Polytrauma Network site for the Veterans Integrated Service Network, Dash 4, this being the program that is the regional consultant for veterans who have sustained traumatic brain injuries and other acquired brain injuries from all, all combat and military errors. Dr. Robinson, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. I know you're a busy physician and professor, and we sincerely appreciate you being with us. Thank you, Candace. Uh, thank you, Kirby. So let's jump right in and talk about, can, can you discuss how the label of the severity of a brain injury at the time of the event is flawed and how it predicts your recovery? Well, you know, most people at the time of the event uh, that is associated with the traumatic brain injury are uh, labeled with some sort of recovery, usually uh, mild, moderate, severe. Typically, it's based on the, or classically and historically, it's based on the Glasgow Coma Scale. And, um, any, and it's, it's scaled from zero to 15. It's, people are fairly familiar. You know, at, at issue in what is being discussed at a national level is that having the label of mild, which is inclusive of up to 80% of traumatic brain injuries, uh, it is, does not necessarily mean that you are having mild consequences over the long term. So 10, 15, 20, 25 years later. So in fact, what we call your clinical trajectory can have quite severe disturbances in cognition and behavior. Usually people who are categorized as mild don't have big problems with motor function, they may have balance and coordination functions. And then what's, you know, what's curious and interesting, people who are categorized as moderate and severe, who more often than not land in inpatient programs, immediate post-injury acute hospitals, and then go to on acute rehabilitation. We have people who have, you know, quite remarkable recovery, inclusive of their motor recovery, cognitive, and, um, and behavioral issues. It's part of you know, what we're seeing, certainly at the VA, is at least 80 and up to 90% of the people that we have, uh, we, we see are categorized as mild at the time of the event. Um, it's usually based on data that are incomplete. So in the field of combat or out in military 
you know, bases, having a Glasgow coma scale is, is, you know, it's, it's not always there, you know, and, right. and when you're then um, uh, speaking to people who have traumatic brain injury, it, it's often based on their history, which if they're cognitively impaired, it's usually based on, well, I, they told, it's based on hearsay, essentially. Right. right. I think what, I heard. Right. I think I heard is this is what they told me how I look like. You right. Know? But it, 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 in particularly in the severe population or in the, excuse me, particularly in the mild population, it, it, it can be unfair because people, particularly in the behavioral, the cognitive, emotional and mood realm, they can have quite um, severe consequences, you know, that require ongoing treatment. And, you know, we know some of the current uh, mainstream insurance reimbursed right. treatment models don't really want to, you know, uh, contribute a lot to care uh, beyond a, beyond one time. year. And in fact, you know, even the model data, uh, the model systems data, TBI data systems, which we'll talk about at some point, mm -hmm. they're they're getting better and better at, at having collected data longitudinally. Um, but it, you know, most of the data are based on people who are admitted to big medical centers, level one trauma centers, then go to rehabilitation. So it's really better data that's categorizing the moderate to severe group. The, 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 the mild group, you know, they're in and out of the emergency room where they have other injuries and then the other injuries that could be physical heal. And then the cognitive and behavioral issues come back to really, you know, haunt people and become part of their lives and can interfere with their lives. So we feel that in the VA, you know, it's a nationalized health system that we're committed to lifetime care and we're, we're better able to really follow people longitudinally. And we have a rather, you know, system-wide or national level, you know, system of care, we call the polytrauma system of care. Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, where we can address ongoing issues over time. So one, one of the issues we may discuss today is the, uh, the risk factor of a, having a traumatic brain injury early in your life may set you up to, to have an earlier onset of a degenerative disease later in your life, such as an Alzheimer's dementia or Parkinsonian's, you know, Parkinson's mm -hmm. disease or something like that. Right. So, you know, there have been some solutions to recharacterize severity over time. So the people that developed the Glasgow Coma Scale developed the Glasgow Coma Extended Outcome Scale. And again, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's great it's been developed, but it's, mm -hmm. it's something that's, you know, limited. So um, there, and there are just national level discussions with researchers at the NIH, the Department of Defense of, 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 of what this means. So in the, you know, in a, at our polytrauma team meetings, we were reviewing, you know, regularly new, new referrals or people that we've been following over time. Um, we're very careful to say, yes, their cognitive behavior issues might be moderately severe, but this does not, you know, it's, we're, we're dissociating it or distinguishing it from what they look like at the time of injury. And at times we don't know what they look like at the time of injury. Right. Again, most of the people we're not seeing, we're not seeing our veterans with traumatic brain injury during the first year. We're usually seeing them well after a year. So, you know, some of the uh, you know, what's, what's happened in the last 15 years in the polytrauma system of care is that we've been able to uh, 
in the VA system better capture people who have traumatic brain injury from all eras. So going back to Vietnam through the 1980s, through the uh, uh, Persian Gulf War One in the 1990s. So we're, I think we're really doing a better job at capturing those who have been or had traumatic brain injuries over the years. I mean, the other, the other issue to bring up, uh, particularly when we're talking about mild traumatic brain injury, and, you know, up until about, let's say 20 years ago to the, you know, to the beginning of the century, right. half of the people who treated traumatic brain injury, particularly mild or, you know, in the old days, we would use the word persistent post-concussion, you know, it, it, a lot of people in the, who, in the medical field and, and neuropsychology fields didn't simply believe in it, that it actually even existed. And what's, what's really- That's alarming. Sorry? That's alarming. No, that, well, it's, for lack of better words, what's uh, legitimized yeah. um, mild traumatic brain injury as a true and real entity. It's, it's, it's not only the veteran experience post 9-11 with our veterans coming back from Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Iraq, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, at that point in traditional combat, combat, combat has changed over time. Yes. But, but the other is, is the recognition among children to professional athletes, children, athletes, and professional athletes, uh, the, the fact of repeated concussions, playing soccer, lacrosse, football, et cetera, and then this entity and professional athletes, the, particularly the, the American footballers, the, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So it's real, it's believable. We're getting better at defining the pathophysiology or the neuropathology of it. It's, it's consistent syndromically that, you know, there is a predictable and consistent, you know, set of symptoms that we're seeing, which we'll discuss, particularly when we start to talk about mild traumatic brain injury and the overlap with post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And and I want to point out to the listeners as well, the civilian population, which they're well aware of, they don't have the long-term identification and services available. The veterans do. And so I celebrate that. I have to say that I'm quite encouraged to hear that because that's not available to the people who have this civilian population where they go to uh, a, they go through their chronic stage and rehabilitation and then they kind of fall off a cliff there's no safety net right right so I mean in the last 15 years since the initiation of the polytrauma programs within veterans health affairs they were legislated in 2005 started in 2006 we in Philadelphia have We've received close to 4,000 referrals. We are actively case managing about 200 at any one point in time, but we are well embedded and highly identified in the culture that if people, we quote, discharge people after active treatment programs uh, or refer them on to, you know, other specialists, behavioral health specialists, Mm -hmm. the veterans or the patients and their families they know where to find us <laughs> and I, I, come back into the care. And if I'm thankful for that, and if they move across the country and if they're actively being case managed, I mean, we have certainly remote, remote access to the electronic record, but we do a very friendly handoff to the other teams. So thank you for that. That warms my heart. It encourages me to know that, that, that our veterans are being well taken care of, especially under your supervision here in Philadelphia. So would you elaborate on the interaction of mild TBI and concurrent psychiatric conditions 
among our veterans. Right. So um, this term polytrauma 15 years ago mm -hmm. was really poorly understood in the early days of the polytrauma programs. We didn't, we didn't know what to expect was coming in the door. And we quickly learned that uh, the, you know, the diagnostic triad that they were, we were seeing was mild mm -hmm. traumatic brain injury, PTSD, and with or without depression, and uh, an array of chronic uh, chronic pain syndromes is the sort of the big three. So fortunately mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, the traumatic brain injury, the brain injury program, and the chronic pain program are under the rehabilitation umbrella. And we have behavioral health, close relationships with behavioral health providers who sit on our traumatic brain injury team, our polytrauma team. And we have uh, active, uh, you know, active neuropsychological assessment as part of that. You know, when you, considering post-traumatic stress disorder, there's, you know, there's many kinds and flavors. So, and the civilian experience is, it can be very different from the, the combat experience. So we have this idiosyncratic uh, brand of PTSD that occurs to people when they are in combat. And right. that's not to minimize that it, it, it is a real entity in the, in the civilian population. And, you know, what we are seeing is that there's an overlap of cognitive and behavioral symptoms. So people with mild traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress disorder could both have problems with paying attention, remembering short-term or long-term. And with, you know, we call their executive dysfunctions, these, these <laughs> more diffuse, cerebrally located dysfunction that we pretend live in the, in the frontal lobe, but it's making decisions, developing hypotheses, um, planning, you know, initiating. So, so there's a lot of common ground, but there's also parts of each diagnostic entity that, that distinguish. So in traumatic brain or in mild traumatic brain injury, what you see that you don't really see in PTSD are this, what we call the vestibular or really the, the sensory processing problems. The, the, the challenges in the world are processing the environmental and sensory information that comes into your brain. And when I say processing, it's really integrating because it's processing or using the sens sensory information online. It really helps you move smoothly and fluidly through time and space. So as a result, you can see people have balance and coordination problems. They have sensitivity to light or photophobia. They can, if they're in environments that are sensory overloading, they can get nauseated, they can vomit. You know, you don't really see that in the PTSD population. You know, on the other hand, in the PTSD population, there are very specific behaviors that you do see that you don't necessarily see in the mild traumatic brain injury so that the, 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 the nightmare, the, the, yeah, the special yeah. brand of of sleep disorder or insomnia, the light, the, the nightmares in which the, the experience of why you have PTSD is reenacted, whether it's a combat experience, a traumatic experience. And then, and then related to that, it's the, the fact that the, uh, that the PTSD, the, the, you know, super hyper anxiety, the hypervigilance, the, just inability momentarily to function or function at all for several minutes to hours can get triggered in environments that remind you. So 
you know, it, it, one example is we have veterans with mild traumatic brain injury and concurrent PTSD who we cannot even have walk in the door at the VA because it is a, it triggers, it triggers. A, a, a curious and great corollary to that and, um, and, and really it's, you know, not a positive outcome of the pandemic mm-hmm. is that because of the nature of the population that is, we label as mild, their motor issues are not prominent, their cognitive and behavioral issues are prominent, that we have had better participation in terms of cancellation of clinic show rates in the virtual world than we have had in the face-to-face world. So our, you know, no-show rates, once, once wow. we sort of really went full course press with, with virtual care, reduced from about 20 to 25% to less than 5%. And, you know, some of it is consider the nature of the mild traumatic, traumatically brain injured population. It's younger. So our average age uh, of the population is, you know, in the 40s, maybe mm-hmm. some of them as they're aging, approaching 50s. They are it's young to us. They're y- young. They're savvier from an IT perspective. Right. And, you know, we we're you know, we we love telehealth and telemedicine in the right. VA, but it's it's our older part. Po- older patients who it, it's not a user-friendly world, but it's a yeah. much, much user-friendlier world for our younger population. So, and, you know, a lot of, again, as extension to that, are, you know, not only some of the one-on-one psychotherapies that the team members are doing, but the support groups, the occupational skills groups uh, have done well virtually, but, you know, we're also learning that People do need human contact. So. Right. It's a relationship building. <laughs> right, right. They want we, to see so people. we evolve. We make sure we, you know, periodically have people come in and, you know, look them, look them straight in the eye and really yeah. find out what's going on. So it's, check in with them. Right. See their expressions. Okay. Yeah. See them. But uh-huh. we're, you know, in in I think the national data, or the national veteran data. Uh, is somewhere between 60 and 70% of the mild traumatic brain injury population have um, PTSD. And we're seeing that similarly in our own population in Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, it's the, the, the fact of concurrent PTSD, it interacts with the depression, which I can talk about in a minute. Yeah, um, yeah. And, but it's people are not integrating into the community, they're failing in school, they're failing in their lives. So, you know, obviously and absolutely there must be concurrent behavioral health treatments. So, you know, the other, I think, positive corollary of this, when you think about the traditional rehabilitation approaches and models, and, you know, it's that question, well, who's treatable and who's not treatable, you know? (laughs) How can I improve to the third party payer? that this patient is going to make meaningful progress. And if you have behavioral disturbances that interfere with, that you perceive will interfere with treatment, you will, you will not, in the traditional model, sure. you could not be offered treatment. And, you know, in the model that we've evolved, our, we, we've had to be more inclusive. Our, our, I don't want to, I'll use the word threshold for allowing people to have more disturbing or challenging psychiatric behavioral symptoms is allowed in the treatment model. And, but it's the treatment model is allied closely with, uh, with behavioral health providers and making sure that people are, are, um, 
are, you know, receiving behavioral health treatments, whether it's group individualized and, you know, and some of that is determining, you know, it, it, you know, the treatment's not long-term it's, it's, you know, we're treating people over extended periods of time, not, not three times a week, but, um, but really depending a lot on our behavioral health providers to teach us and it's vice versa. And we teach them strategies uh, to, you know, figure out behaviorally and cognitively what's, what's the best way to have an optimal learning situation right. and treatment. Now, um, we have to talk about depression because yeah, please. That my um, next question depression we- is actually a more prevalent uh, comorbid psychological condition than PTSD. And, you know, in the veteran population, we're talking about comor- combat related but depression is is a bigger challenge, not only for the our, our veterans who have TBI, but for the civilian population. So, you know, one way to think about it, I think about depression, it is it can be considered an an, an appropriate and normal rea- emotional reaction to a situation of loss. Right. So, so one of the challenges in in as one recovers in traumatic brain injury, if you don't completely recover or if you don't perceive yourself as the person you were before the event that caused the TBI, um, your experience in a loss. So some of what is appropriate is you have to grieve the loss right. of, of who you were before, you know, in, you know, to, to not completely reduce it down, but you have to figure out who the new person is. And that's part of the treatment. I and, agree. And it's not that the old person goes away and you have a new person, but you sort of have to. There's you know, a hybrid there somewhere. The, the pre-injury and the and the post-injury personality, person relationships, etc. So, um, and we so and 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 the fact in our veteran population, the fact of having PTSD even augments and increases the risk of having a depression. We have in our some of the data that we've looked at, um, we have found uh, depression to be uh, a serious obstacle to getting reengaging in the community, community reintegration. Uh, So in two threads that we're looking at, one thread is looking at the whole relationship between depression and just everyday functional status in life over time. Right. So one of the one of the um, data databases that we've been accessing is the, the TBI model systems database, which has been in existence almost thirty years, and there are longitudinal data, but we're specifically looking at uh, the relationship between these two variables, depression and functional status. And what's curious, and we've only looked at ten first ten years so far. Oh my goodness, you've got a lot of data to go through. A lot, lot. I got really great. I've got there. My collaborators are living and breathing to make me look good. Let me tell you. But the, oh, that's good for the for first that. for the first two years, and during that period of time where most people were getting some kind of active treatment interventions after the event of the tra- traumatic brain injury, it's the the fact of a depression and experiencing depression, whether it's an appropriate or an augmented uh, response, but depressive symptomatology is really is really causing a reduction in function. So we're finding in the first two years, you have more active and proactive treatment of depression, your function is improving. 
What's happening then after you year two at year five and year 10 is that it's a more, it's less of a causal and more of an interaction so that the fact that the depression reduces function, but then in the long term, you know, it's, it's, you know, even with limited self-monitoring and insight, you, you are, you know, and if your recovery is incomplete, there are issues that are interfering with your everyday life again. And that feeds back on the depression. Uh, and then a longer term issue is the whole, you know, it's the, it's the recognition or considering, uh, you know, when, when people are, when their function is optimizing after a certain period of time. And do you want to call this a dimension? No, but you know, it's, it's sort of, it's a risk factor and, and it's something that's out there that we're, we're looking at. So the other thread is that we're actively, actually, um, we have a pilot study going on at the VA that's treating depression in our traumatic brain injury. And we're using a strategy called behavioral activation. And it's a, it's a well-established um, psychotherapeutic um, processor stra strategy. It's sort of the way it's been dumbed down to me is that it's mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral treatment without the cognitive piece. Oh. But the behavioral activation strategy is very akin to you know how we usually approach treatment and rehabilitation. So we are we are talking to patients. We are having them identify what are the top three challenges in your life, and we are then uh, developing behaviorally based strategies to try to teach them or over help them overcome what these major strategies are in life. So it's goal-driven, it's short-term. The, the other good thing about it is that it's actually my occupational therapy staff are, they are able to do the treatment. They can be trained and do the treatment. So you don't need psychiatrists, psychologists, psychiatric social workers. They're able to do the treatment. I mean, in many ways they've established the treatment, but it's, it's a treatment that the occupational therapist, um, are you know very trainable and uh, can do so it's actually so we're just you know on the verge of recruiting patients for this uh we're gonna you know the initial round for the pilot data is to look at 20 patients this year with a with a treatment treatment trial of of, of six um of six, six sessions measuring outcome before after Mm -hmm. And, you know, particularly depressive symptomatology, but also uh, functional status and decision making this week is that we're really leaving it open to the veterans if they want virtual or face to face contacts, a lot of them like the virtual contact so. So, you know, PTSD is there and it's different from civilian it happens in the civilian population, but I think the prevalence is, is less depression is is everywhere, both in the civilian and in the veteran population. And the concurrence of, of PTSD not only reduces function in, in our mild traumatic brain injury population, but then uh, is associated with depression that further reduces you know, function and what you can do in everyday life. And so uh, I just want to, uh, to reply to what you've said about this depression versus PTSD, that you've got to attack, you've got to have services that focus on the depression so that they can get into a program for PTSD and to, to attack those, maybe that's not the right word, um, 
they would be able to master some skills that you can teach them about coping right. with PTSD. Right, right, right. It's I mean, great. and you know, yeah. for us in rehabilitation, first first. it's it's important that these are behaviorally based strategies. People are teachable, trainable. They can learn, and it's it's not. You know, many of the patients are on medications, but these are not the answer. This is not the answer of the medications. It's certainly I not agree. the answer. Uh, thank you for saying that. Yeah. I absolutely agree. So can you review how your polytrauma clinical and research teams are managing depression in your veterans that have TBI? Well, I think, you know, part of the initial assessment is we're doing, um, you know, we're using screening tools for depression and PTSD. And, you know, uh, indicating the possibility of one of these entities on a screening tool is not diagnostic, but then we are making sure that people get referrals to behavioral health, psychiatrists, psychologists. Um, The VA has done an amazing job at at hiring the specialist and we having particularly PTSD, you know, uh, teams and specialists for this. Um, and we are, you know, offering people treatment, um, and, um, you know, making sure that they are actively engaged with behavioral health providers, you know, on a, on a regular basis, that doesn't necessarily mean weekly they're, you know, entering base, you know, groups of support groups or treatment groups at certain points in time. You know, within the VA, it's highly recognized. I mean, you know, the, the sort of elephant in the room with all of this is the is the increased risk of, of suicide. Right. So yeah. you call the VA on the voicemail if, you know, it, it, you are referred to the suicide hotline if needed. So we, you know, we are actively and ongoing assessing people's, you know, potential for harming themselves. So that's just really well ingrained in the culture. Um, and you know, in our veteran population, it, it, it's a, a culture in the military that's uh, fairly familiar with guns. So, every, right. just assume everybody sure. has a gun available know? to them. Yes, exactly. But, and you, you know, you can't walk into people's homes and lock their guns up or take them away. But you know, some of the counseling is, for, you know, giving out free gun lock devices, and so it's it, it you know, it's 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 part of a risk that's certainly actively recognized in there. Um, on the team I mentioned, we have a psychologist, we're hiring another one this summer, I hope, and um, we have a psychiatrist. Um, right. Future future, future needs is, is, is probably to hire another neuropsychiatrist, so a psychiatrist who specializes in neurological diseases. They're very hard to find, but you know, I have my I have, I have my eye on a few, uh, a few people that's, that's, that's next year's. And that it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's a combination of who and when the, the right individuals available and, you know, the, the money's in the budget. So spending the money or finding the money uh, and, you know, we've been, we've been fortunate. We're getting resources thrown at us to, to support right. this. Great. That, that excites me. That's terrific. And it, have you noticed there's been a reduction in suicide? Have you, I know over the years, or is it plateaued and there's more resources to be had? There's more support for that? Oh, I know. Uh, I can't, I can't honestly say there's a bit of reduction. I think we're still scratching our heads and pondering what, you know, what are the inner 
underpinnings of this, what are we missing? Mm -hmm. um, I think for me to say that there would be a reduction would be minimizing it as a real issue. But I, I, I think some of it at the VA is just, it's, it's just actively in the culture. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and you have your eye on it. I can, I can see that this is a priority for you. So, and um, so let's and, talk about, and, and even think, you know, thinking about, you know, the considering uh, suicidality and traumatic brain injury and PTSD, the issue of being impulsive, right, right. <laughs> hyper irritable, regulation. easily induced to anger, yeah. Yeah. easy to pick a fight with, you know, can, and, and poor self-monitoring. I mean, there are behaviors embedded in, in, in those disorders, which can sort of, uh, you know, facilitate that, that self-harmful, harmful to other types of behaviors can occur. And we're trying to teach aggressive behavior to our soldiers. And so- Well, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So therein lies, yeah, that, that's a, a real challenge to, yeah. to take that so, apart. Um, so let's talk, if you would, uh, a minute about uh, family members and how important it is to integrate them into the treatment for veterans. Great, great. So, you know, traditionally and historically in rehabilitation, the family caregivers, the family members, you know, a caregiver, you know, what family means. It's, it's friends, it's mm -hmm. neighbors, it's church members, et cetera. You know, it's not always blood relatives. You know, we've always considered them part of the team. And, you know, what historically in the VA, um, the family has not always been included until, you know, maybe the last 20 years. <laughs> so, so some of it is the recognition that caregivers happen to be very important if you're taking care of people with, you know, dementia and other neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's disease. So which I've done a good part of my career. And then, um, but but with the development of the polytrauma system of care, we've been, you know, really more proactive and um, explicitly inclusive of family members. So, you know, our original patients 10, 15 years ago would be walking in with wives, children, infants, baby crying in the waiting room. And this oh my is like, goodness. what Anxiety is going on We haven't seen this do. in the forever. So it was sort of a, you know, and, you know, throw into the mix the increase of uh, of women in the military, you know, up to 30% of active service, but up to 20% of the the patients or veterans we see in Philadelphia are women with an active development of, of women's health. So the, the moms are the moms are coming in. Right. And then um, part of the work we've been doing is there there were uh, great caregiver training dementia models that were that were study developed in the 1980s and 1990s. And the, the person in the know is, is an investigator named Laura Gitlin, who's actually been in it, mostly in Philadelphia. She used to be at Jefferson. She's now the Dean of Allied Health uh, Professions and Nursing at Drexel. She's mm -hmm. sort of an amazing person. And awesome. So we've, you know, for lack of better words, taken, stolen the model, taken mm -hmm. the model, and, but we've adapted it to a caregiver patient, you know, we patient caregiver dyad training for traumatic brain injury. It's, you know, recognizing that dementia can be out there, but we're, you know, part of it is recognizing that the issues that are priority 
obstacles or challenges to engagement in everyday life, they change as you grow older, certainly. And, um, you know, for now it is a younger population. And it's, it's, I mentioned some of the treatment has to be driven by the patient, their perception of what are the big issues interfering with life. But some of that, you know, regarding the caregivers is it's, you know, what, what they also perceive as the three big challenges and whether, whether or not there's overlap. Do they align? And agreement. Yeah. Not always, you know, and that's, yeah. That we, yeah. we expect that. And the other piece of it is, is, you know, in rehabilitation, it can be quite expensive to do treatment in the home, but, but, you know, doing treatment in the clinic is, it's not a meaningful environment and we're dependent on how we behave, how we think, how we move on the environmental cues that are unfamiliar to us. So what we've, what we've developed is a home-based intervention that's performed by occupational therapists that is an eight session curriculum Fantastic. that works directly with the, the, the designated caregiver and the patient together and each separately and each having their own outcome, uh, outcome variables. So we have great preliminary data that we collected a few years ago. Our big outcome variable is looking at community reintegration. Right. And, um, and we now, um, the, the big criticism of that study was that it was pilot data that could, 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 the question was, could it be generalized beyond veterans? And we said, we don't know. So we're now we're doing a multi-center trial that's comparing veterans with uh, traumatic brain injured people in the civilian um, community. So recruiting from such uh, practices at Penn, Remed, the Residential Brain Injury Program, and we're hoping MOSS rehab. So, Fantastic. Well, so that, that's just, we're only, yeah. we're just ending the first year of that study and just really, we, we've started to, starting, starting to recruit patients, but really, and, you know, from the preliminary data, we, we've learned a lot about PTSD, particularly the depression, the, the, the spinoff of treating the depression with behavioral activation are, are based on, you know, that data. And, you know, not a lot of rehabilitation interventions, these are randomized clinical trials, but not a lot of them, there's very few that, can, that you can find that have happened in the home. And, you know, we realize that Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Medicare, it's, it's the, the models are not, um, the, the reimbursement models are not conducive to treating right. people in the, in the home. And, uh, but in a nationalized health system of the, ver the VA, it's, we, you know, it's not that we're time inefficient, but we feel as if we were spending time with people in the home and performing the interventional strategies in the meaningful environment, you know, it's not that people won't have needs down the road, but they, we're going to help them optimize at a certain functional level as they, right. you know, as they get older. Right. So the, the family you know, the, the family units or the caregivers are, you know, really important. We talked about suicide. We know that people who are kind of disconnected from family, you know, right. the, the right. risk is higher. The risk yeah. is higher. Their families disintegrate. Uh, at times, yeah. at times we become, the team becomes their surrogate uh, families. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, you know, I, we, I, uh, yeah, it's well recognized that marriages, you know, or relationships are challenges challenged after the fact of traumatic brain injury. Absolutely. Divorce, divorce is not 
you know, surprising. Right. But lo and behold, we're actually doing couples therapy at the VA. You know. It's oh so- <laughs> my gosh! Oh my gosh! You do have a lot of work on your plate. So, like, really? Finally, we're doing it. You know, but it's yeah. it's uh, yeah. it's 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 great. It's, it's so it's, valuable. Right. They, they need that. Yeah. They need the interaction and they need a therapist to show them the way. And I'm no. sure everybody that you're seeing wants to be fixed, you know, show well, me. We, we just, we just want to get them to talk to one another, okay. you know, Fair enough. Right. <laughs> bring in a few, you know, common ground issues, you know? Yeah. There's a good start indeed. Uh, and so as, as we close up here, I finally wanted to ask you about uh, how, if you could give some encouragement to our listeners and advice that, that might help them with, if they're still struggling, what could well, you share with them? I think that, um, you know, people are going to struggle. That's part of it, but try to really be clear with, or try to define and pinpoint what is the major issue that's, you know, interfering with your life, getting through the day. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, encouraging the, caregivers and the patients to be aggressive at, at, at demanding treatment or, or figuring out, you know, from their care providers, you know, to find a way to get the treatment that is needed. You know, I, you know, some of what uh, we're hoping with uh, the data, you know, the, the in, in-home occupational therapy treatment is that we can convince the likes of Medicare, Blue Cross to start paying for what in the resident in the in the some of the brain injury world is called a community reentry model. So it's a blended outpatient in the community, in real life, in the home model of treatment that's different from the Medicare A driven uh, post acute hospital home care where the nurse is in, the therapist follow, you look safe, they're in, you're out, on to the next client. This is a longer term commitment where therapists, psychologists are going in, defining what, you know, what the treatment priorities now. And then there can be technicians, facilitators who then go in at a later time and, 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 um, Rehearse, <laughs> repeat, yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> you know, uh, enact, operationalize the skill treatment program, and it's. I think it's viewed by the third-party payers as a potential bottomless pit of need. But you know, we are, we are, fantastic in the world right now with new medical technologies of keeping people alive today whom we didn't 10, 20, 30, 40 50 years ago, and let's you know you know, the latest example is the new uh, cancer treatment models, you know, the precision medicine models. So in a sense, we have to pay, we're keeping more people alive who have issues and challenges, and we have to develop systems to, to treat them. So I think, you know, back to what advice can I give your, 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 your patients, your clients, your families is be persistent, you know, you know, try to be as specific and explicit as you can of, of what the issues are, the challenge of getting through day, and then be demanding, be, be aggressive, be persistent. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. And I know that our veteran population can do that. And we're also encouraging our, um, everybody listening that our civilian population, maybe they're meek or mild and they don't want to inconvenience anybody. They don't want to be a burden to their caregivers and, uh, to, to really reach out and, and embrace 
the, your recovery, make it a full-time right. job that you have to get help and get services and speak up. That's a great message. And I, I thank you for your tireless work and closing the gap for thank the you. survivors. It's really been amazing talking with you. And I, honestly, I'm encouraged by all the work that you're doing. And I see this model really, if we can duplicate it in the civilian population, right. I think that's that would well, be a brilliant future for us. So, some of our European colleagues with nationalized health services are actually adopting the model. So there's, you know, we've got we've got some action going on in Norway right now. You know. <laughs> oh, so I'm hoping. Uh, <laughs> there's yeah, hope. There's hope. Yeah, there, yeah, indeed. And to our listeners, so thank you again, Dr. Robinson. It's right. been a pleasure talking to you. All right. Thanks, Candace. Thanks, Kirby. And to and to our subscribers and our podcast, share this with others. Tell people, be bold, go out and share this with other people. Please help your fellow brain injury survivors by posting this on your website, social media. There are millions that are still struggling that you, yes, you could help by spreading this information, make a difference in someone's life. And I wish you to give you a virtual hug and tell you, you are not invisible to us.